Well, the thing I'm going to focus on, if you're still reading the story with us, with me, you know we're in chapter 30 and there's only 31 chapters. And chapter 30 is kind of a follow-up of last week uh, where we focus primarily on Paul's ministry in Corinth, the Corinthian church. You know, when Paul wrote his letters, he had a particular reason to write each letter. For example, the church in Corinth, if you remember last week, we talked a lot about immaturity. The church that wasn't growing up, they, they had some splitting, there was not unity, they were a disciple of this person, a disciple of that person. There was a lot of things that were awry, there were some doctrinal issues taking place. So when he wrote to Corinth, that's what was going on there, kind of a word of teaching, correction, uh, as well as the encouragement along with the rebuke. When he wrote the letters to Thessalonica, the books of First and Second Thessalonians, he wrote them to encourage them because they were going through a very, very difficult time of persecution. Paul always had a reason for writing the letters. And we're going to be focusing today on Ephesus, but what I'm really going to be focusing on is discipleship. The sustaining lifeblood of the church is discipleship. Without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit, those are givens. The church won't survive. But discipleship is critical, as we're going to see. And sometimes I have a tendency, and maybe you do too, when I read about somebody like Paul, I go, well, yeah, that was Paul, and that was way back then. He didn't have to deal with what we have to deal with here. Well, if you remember Corinth, it wasn't exactly a place to go to plant a church. And there are many, many other people in the centuries that have passed since Paul that have done similarly. As a matter of fact, you and I are called to be the light and to be the salt in the areas we live in. And if you haven't noticed, if you look around, it's not exactly the most um, obvious place to evangelize. It's not the most easy place to plant a church. We have issues, cultural issues, things that are challenges. But over the years, many have stepped up. And I want to just start by sharing a story about a young lady. When she was only 20 years old, she left the small village in Ireland, left what was a relatively comfortable life because she felt called to go to missions. And when she was 20 years old, she, and this is in about 1887, she had listened to a man by the name of Hudson Taylor. And this lady's name is Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was called to missions, and she felt like she was supposed to go to China, but because she had health issues, the mission that, that uh, Hudson Taylor was sent by wouldn't accept her because she had a disease called neuralgia. It's a nervous disease. When you have this nerve disease, a nerve disease, not a nervous disease. When you have this nerve disease, basically it causes your body to ache everywhere. It makes it very, very difficult to just do normal everyday things. But she didn't let that disease stop her from going into missions. So she first went to Japan. And she was in Japan for about 15 months until she really responded to where God was truly calling her, and that was to India. And Amy Carmichael spent the next 57 years of her life without a furlough in India, ministering, primarily among the Hindu people. And one of the main focuses of her, her, her ministry was rescuing young girls, especially, but young children, but especially the young girls, because many of the young girls were dedicated to their gods, little g, and the Hindu priests would then take them and force them into prostitution so that the priests could make some money. Sounds a little bit like Corinth, doesn't it? So this is where Amy Carmichael was called. 
And she, she started a, a fellowship or a foundation called the Donover Fellowship. And this fellowship of hers ran a hospital and had three different schools that could hold up to 1,000 kids. And she was doing this for her whole life, from the age of 20 on. Towards the end of her life, when I say the end, like the last 20 years of her life, she fell and severely injured herself. And she spent most of the last 20 years of her ministry in bed. And from her bed, she would continue to monitor her fellowship. She wrote many of the 35 books that she has published. And she continued to train and disciple leaders from bed. Amy had a lot in common with the Apostle Paul. And there is a lot of other contemporary missionaries who have a lot in common with the Apostle Paul. But in her case, they both were dealing with the temple prostitutes in Corinth and also we're going to see in Ephesus where she had it with the Hindu priests and the Hindu temples. They both ran into all kinds of false gods and false goddesses and they also ran into a lot of sorcery and magic that they had to confront. They both had painful afflictions. Her neuralgia... Paul's eyes, and then just pick any of the beatings and stonings and whippings that Paul had. They used confinement to continue their ministry. They persevered. They didn't let it stop. She was confined to a bed. For 20 years, her ministry continued and flourished as she discipled, trained, and wrote. Paul was confined in prison. Didn't stop his ministry. He wrote much of what we read in the New Testament in under house arrest or in jail. They persevered, both of them. And they persevered to the very end. India was kind of Amy Carmichael's Ephesus. Everybody has an Ephesus. They didn't take it for granted and they didn't hesitate for a moment to go to really hard places to share the gospel. And quite frankly, when we think of missionaries, we usually think of some far away place, some exotic land, some native tribe or whatever. But the reality is, we are called to be missionaries wherever we are planted. Ballatin's a hard place to be a, minister, a missionary, as is Tracy and Marshall and Russell and Slayton, Pipestone. It's hard. Sometimes it's harder in your home going around your neighborhood. How many of you are good missionaries in your neighborhood? Don't raise your hand. because I don't want us to see the lack of hands. Because it's hard. But we're called to do it. That's our Ephesus. So I'm going to first take a look at Paul's Ephesus, because once again, you need to kind of have a picture in context to see the critical role that I'm going to be stressing throughout today's message about discipleship and how critical it is. First of all, if you were here last week, Ephesus was pretty similar to Corinth. When it got so bad in Corinth and Paul had to leave, he went to Ephesus and he runs into very similar things. It was a very large, wealthy city. It had uh, about 300,000 people, according to estimates. They were very, very proud of their culture. They had a large theater. Believe it or not, I I'm just astounded when I look at these pictures and realize what I'm looking at is about 2,000 years old. It's still there. But 2,000 years ago, they had a theater that... A theater that, that held 25,000 people. 
They had a huge library. Now, Mike, they built this huge library. You know, the Greek influence, education, philosophy, books, and reading. They were educated. They didn't, and they were wealthy. They were a, a, a wealthy community of people. Matter of fact, they prided themselves in their intellect. They prided themselves in their wealth. They prided themselves in their entertainment. Kind of like a country or two we can think of. They didn't need God. And besides that, they had all kinds of gods and goddesses. But they also had a, you know, they, they uncovered, put the home picture up there if you can. I think it's the next one. This house is over 2,000 years old, these ruins. Very wealthy people. They actually had painted from, from colors in clay that they, they lined their walls. I mean, this was a wealthy people. They didn't need God much. And then what they, they really were famous for was a temple. The Temple of Artemis, or you maybe have heard it as the Temple of Diana. It was considered, if you've ever heard of the seven wonders of the, the ancient world, this was one of them. This temple that they built to Diana or Artemis. People would come from all over to worship in Ephesus at the Temple of Diana. And of course, part of their worship was once again temple prostitutes and all kinds of other weird stuff. Diana or Artemis was considered, well, you got to understand a little bit about Greek mythology. I mean, they, they had gods and named them all kinds of things, but she was considered to be the um, twin sister of Apollo, the daughter of Zeus. Now, if you're into Greek mythology, those are a big deal. And so was Diana, Artemis. You see a picture of her as a statue, the multiple breasts. She was the goddess of hunting, the goddess of fertility. They worshipped her. And if you remember the story, which I won't spend much time on this part, but remember the story of Paul when he was in Ephesus? Things went pretty good for quite a while until he ticked off a group of people. The silversmiths. He ruined their economy. The silversmiths made and sold all these idols and little statues of Diana. And as so many people were getting converted, their business was being ruined. And they ran them out of Dodge, in this case Ephesus. You know, it's really interesting. If you study Ephesus, there's a lot of things that you can go back to Ephesus and you can come forward in time and you can come all the way to the United States of America. There's a number of different things. I'll only mention one of them. Wicca. How many of you have heard of Wicca? Supposedly it's good witchcraft. Well, there is a branch of Wicca that is called Dianic Wicca. They estimate there's between two and 300,000 Wiccans in the United States. And many of them are in the Dianic part of Wicca. 2,000 years it's hung on. And lots of other things. If you ever want to study it, it's an interesting study of what from ancient, ancient Ephesus is still influencing our culture today. Life lesson number one that I want us to remember from this first introduction is simply, everybody has an Ephesus. Paul didn't hesitate to go to his Amy Carmichael didn't hesitate to go to hers. 
We need to not hesitate and not be afraid to be effective in ours. So once again, Paul is challenged as he goes to Ephesus to plant a church. Paul actually spent more time in Ephesus than any other single location. Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians. And if you read his letter to the Ephesians, the book of Ephesus, you'll see he didn't address a single problem. Not one. First three chapters, he talks about doctrine that declare who you and I are in Jesus Christ. Children of God, free in Christ. First three chapters, he lays out that. And then the next three chapters, he talks about how we should then live. But not a single problem is addressed. And I wonder why. Why were there no problems in Ephesus throughout Paul's life? Well, I don't know for sure, and I'm sure there's more than one reason, but I believe one of the primary reasons is the type of discipleship that they had in Ephesus. When you look at this city of Ephesus and the church in Ephesus, there was no other church that had the intensive and continual discipleship that this church had. Put up the timeline. Thank you. It's already there. When you look at that timeline, you see from about 49 A.D. up through about 62, 64 A.D., 12, 14 years, there were key figures from the early church at Ephesus teaching. Of course, the first one was Paul and his first visit. Paul's first visit was a pretty brief one. He was actually working his way towards Antioch, kind of his home base for missions. And it was kind of interesting, as was his practice, when he got to Ephesus, he first went to the synagogue to teach the Jews. Now, in most of the other letters and other experiences of Paul, what happened when he went to teach the Jews? They didn't receive him. Ephesus was different. He went to Ephesus, and he went to the synagogue, and the Jewish people were anxious to hear him. As a matter of fact, this is the only time we see this, the Jews were pleading with him not to go. They wanted him to stay so that they could learn more, that they could sit under more of his teaching. But Paul had to get to Antioch. He felt compelled to get to Antioch, his home base and go back to the church that had sent him out as a missionary. The second thing we see is a Priscilla and Aquila. And again, if, as we've been going through this, you may recall Priscilla and Aquila were a couple. They were tent makers. Paul met them at Corinth. As a matter of fact, he not only met them, he lived with them and stayed with them, teaching them, discipling them, even as they were tent making together to support himself. Priscilla and Aquila didn't stay in one place very long, if you read through the New Testament. They went from Corinth to Ephesus. So when Paul left Ephesus, the new church wasn't left without anybody that was mature. Aquila and Priscilla were there to step up and start teaching, mentoring. It says they had a church in their house. And then there was a young man that came named Apollos who they took under their wing. Stayed with them. Apollos, I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Listen to the description of him. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So here comes this young guy 
full of energy, full of excitement, full of enthusiasm, well-trained, teaching truth. And he comes into Ephesus, and Aquila and Priscilla see him, hear him, and they want to help him. They wanted to disciple him. Because he knew only, what he knew was truth, but he didn't have the whole story. He was teaching about Jesus, but he didn't know about this baptism. The baptism in Christ Jesus. So they took him aside. Even though his teaching was accurate, they found it deficient. There was no jealousy. And Apollos, it speaks to his character that he received. And Priscilla and Aquila made him to be even a more effective teacher, evangelist of the gospel of Christ. We can learn a little bit about discipleship from looking at this scenario. Discipleship works best in the context of relationship. When Jesus called his disciples, he called them to be with him, relationship with him as he taught and trained. When Paul first met Aquila and Priscilla, they got saved and they're in Corinth. Paul moved in with them. God used the fact that they were tent makers just like Paul was. They built relationship. They lived together. Paul was there about 18 months. Relationship, discipling. Now we see Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos taking him in, discipling, building relationship. It works best in relationship. We need to remember that. We need to be discipling. We need to be being discipled. The second thing we can see from this is the humility that Apollos had. This young guy, full of excitement, energy, and enthusiasm, well-learned, well-taught, well-educated, was humble enough to have a teachable spirit. We need to stay humble. I don't care how much you know, someone knows more than you. And if you know more than me and I run into you, I want to learn what you know. We need to be teachable. We need to be humble. We see also that really you can only disciple others to the extent that you've been discipled. If I asked who have you been discipling recently, and you go, well, I'm not sure if anybody, then I would ask this follow-up question, who discipled you? And you might not have a very good answer. I want to encourage all of us, we need to be being discipled, whether corporately or in a group or one-on-one. It's an important process that we need to be involved in. Apollos. And the, the last thing I, we can see here, we sometimes use this as an excuse, I hope we don't, but the mission field's big enough for everybody. There was no turf war. Aquila and Priscilla weren't saying, hey, this is our deal here. You, you need to stay out of our deal. No. Nobody, no group has all the truth. And there are plenty of unsaved people to go around. Amen? We all need to be doing our part. There's a reason that the Scripture says, the fields are white unto harvest. Pray therefore for the laborers. We need more. The church is sometimes too idle. After Apollos, Paul comes back. Man, how would you like this discipleship team that you just keep coming one after the other? Paul comes back, and this time he stays a long time. We don't know how long each visit exactly was of his, but we do know together it was about three years that he spent in Ephesus, pouring his life into Ephesus. And once again, it started out pretty good. The Jews were cooperative, but then they became pretty uncooperative. So the Bible tells us he took all the believers, the Jewish believers, and then all the Gentiles, and they went 
and he taught, it says, for two years in a school, reaching out to the Greeks, the Gentiles, whoever was there. And it was pretty effective. I mean, Acts 19.10 says this, all who lived in all of Asia heard the word because of Paul and his group in Ephesus. It worked well. And things were going smoothly until that little episode I mentioned earlier. The silversmiths, who were making all kinds of money, ripping off the people, selling them idols of Artemis or Diana, were finding their business severely damaged because so many people were getting saved. Think about that. A city of 300,000 and so many people were getting saved, a group of businessmen got upset because their business was declining. Wouldn't that be cool if certain businesses and establishes in our own culture would dry up and go away? Dry up. That was an accident that could work. <laughs> because so many people are getting saved. That should happen. Can you imagine if all of a sudden a little town of 623 people, 400 or 500 of them were Christians? Would it make a difference? Absolutely. And it doesn't matter how big our towns were, because none of our towns are bigger than 300,000. So we could make a difference. And the communities could change. And then his discipleship continued, even as he was imprisoned under house arrest in Rome years later, when he wrote the book of what we call Ephesus, or a letter to the Ephesian church, all on Paul's second visit. Probably his most famous disciple that he discipled was Timothy. Timothy, we see Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. I'm going to read a few selected verses from 1 and 2 Timothy just to give you a picture of the discipleship that was taking place. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine. Watch over the church. Don't let them teach false doctrine any longer, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work. Remember last week when I talked about essential things of our faith versus non-essentials of our faith? If you get hung up on the non-essentials of faith, that sentence could fit you really easily. You do nothing but promote controversies rather than God's work. And he's telling Timothy, hang around, keep an eye on things so this doesn't happen. And then he goes on and says, the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come back, devote yourself to public reading of scriptures, preaching and teaching. Disciple the people. Read the scriptures publicly, preach the word, and teach it. Go deeper. Get them past the milk. Get them to the good, hard meat of the word of God. 1 Timothy 4, 16. Watch your life. And your doctrines closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We talked about this last week. I'm not going to go into it this week, but the world is watching us. Watch your lifestyle. Persevere in a godly lifestyle. He's encouraging Timothy. And then in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men, who also then be qualified to teach others. There's discipleship. Paul taught Timothy, who's to teach reliable men, who will teach other. Another principle of discipleship. 
there should be multiplication, reproduction taking place in discipleship. Life lesson two, discipleship matters. I guarantee you if there's a church dying on the vine, there's not much discipleship going on. And on the other end of that, I can guarantee you, if there is a church thriving and growing, there is discipleship programs and individual discipleship taking place. Discipleship is important. Why does it matter so much? Just listen to a few ideas I want to throw out at you. One, it's the only way you can protect the church from getting off track and going astray. Discipleship. Two, it protects the believers from deceivers. And there is a deceiver out there, and he's going to use lots of different people to try to deceive his church, especially as we get into the end times, further and further. Deception is going to be there. Discipleship builds up the church. It grounds new believers. New believers. If you're a new believer, you need to get discipled. There is so much more to the life in Christ, that abundant life in Christ, than just getting saved and getting your ticket punched to heaven. We want to see you walking in victory in your life. You need to be being discipled. It also fosters a maturing in all of us. If you remember last week, we talked about some of the consequences of remaining an immature church couple things that jump to mind right away are immorality and a lack of unity. We need to continually be maturing wherever we're at. None of us have arrived at this destination over here called Christ-likeness, but we should be moving towards it. Amen? We should be moving towards it, maturing in Christ. Discipleship needs to be deliberate, intentional, doctrinally sound and aimed at duplication or multiplication for discipleship to be successful. You know, at DCC, we talked this morning already about the Abundant Life Academy classes. It's about discipleship. We're going to be discipling groups in these different areas of our lives all of it becoming or being biblically sound doctrine regardless of what the class is. We need to be enrolling in those classes. We need to be bringing our kids to youth group on Wednesday nights so they're being discipled. And then we need to drive the few blocks it is up to the school or Relco Technology Center that we can be discipled. We have our life groups. We should all be involved with life groups. So we're getting discipled and building relationship. Discipleship works best in the context of relationships. And discipleship needs to be taking place in small groups and one-on-one. There's a lot of discipleship going on, but we can always have more. I want to encourage you to be involved. Get involved. Enroll in those classes. We want to get to the place so that people that we call leadership in the church, elders, Uh, pastors, even deacons, aren't the ones teaching these classes. All of you should be able to teach and disciple in a class. All of you. But you've got to be being discipled to get to the place where you can disciple. 
And third thing I look at Paul today is this, and, I, and he had it in common with Amy Carmichael, and that's perseverance. To persevere. You know, I wish the story of Ephesus ended on this really high note, this church that never had any problems, but it doesn't. If you look in Revelation chapter 2, John is writing to the churches. And when he comes to Ephesus, starting in verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I know your perseverance. Man, that's great stuff. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. Amen. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. Good job. And you found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships, hardships for my name, says the Lord. And you've not grown weary. That's all awesome. Wouldn't you love to have the Lord speak that to your church? To us. But, whenever you run into a but in the Bible and the Lord's speaking, it's never good. It didn't end there. That particular part of Scripture, this in, in Revelation, as best we can tell, date-wise, was written by John about 25 years after Paul's death and about 45 years after the church in Ephesus was birthed. So Paul's been gone for 25 years. Timothy's been there. And it, it looks like John may have spent time there himself. But it's 45 years later, and we see the next verse, Revelations 2, verse 4. Yet, or but, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. This is a church, if you what I just read, those first two verses. Can you imagine? Your deeds, he's bragging about your deeds, he's bragging about your good works, how you've endured hardship, how you've been testing doctrine. He's, he's encouraging you, encouraging, encouraging you with all these things you've been doing. And then he says, but you've forsaken your first love. That early church was so filled with love of Jesus that it overflowed out of them into all these good works. Now something's happened. We're probably into second-generation Christians and second-generation members of this church. Forty-five years have passed. They've hung in there, and they're still doing the stuff. But their heart motive has changed. You know, we can fall into that same trap. Boy, it's easy for me to get into that same trap. Doing what we call ministry. Doing the things that we know we're to do. But the problem is now we're doing them because we feel like we have this sense of duty. Well, I'm a Christian. I suppose I better. I'm a Christian, therefore I have to. And we're sliding into, we're doing the good works, but it's coming out of a heart that's no longer passionately in love with Jesus. We're doing the right stuff, but our motives are wrong. God cares about our motives. He is rebuking the church in Ephesus who's doing a fabulous job of doing the stuff but their heart's in the wrong place. Lesson, life lesson three is simply that we need to persevere in the love of Christ. Foremost above everything else because it's out of that that flows everything else. 
if we love the Lord, if we really love Christ, we will love his people. And if we love his people, we will do the works that he calls us to do. So we need to persevere. Doctrine is never a substitute for our devotion to Jesus. Doctrine is not a substitute for devotion. And labor, our works, is never a substitute for his love. And it's easy to slide into that no matter what maturity level you're in. We can get so wrapped up in doing. And a lot of us, somewhere back in our heritage, already have a works mentality that we're still trying to get out of our system. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Christianity is a person. It's about a person. It's about Jesus. So when we study Paul, and as we've been going through these last couple weeks in the story, there is so much material and so much that we can glean and learn from from the Apostle Paul. Today I just touched on three things. One, we need to be willing to go to our Ephesus. We need to be willing to go and do, wherever we're planted, the work of the ministry. Two, discipleship matters. Get involved in discipling. We all need a Paul. We all need a Timothy. Timothy had Barnabas. We need to get involved. Take advantage of the opportunities with the classes, the life groups. Get discipled. And third, we need to persevere in love for Christ. It's all about him anyway. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I praise you and thank you that you have given us your word and the Holy Spirit to help us to get it, to understand it, to to implement what we learn. Lord, I thank you for the examples we have of Paul. And I thank you also for the examples of contemporary missionaries like Amy Carmichael, and there are so many more stories. But Lord, I pray that you would put in our hearts a real burden for those in our own areas of influence. God, where we are planted, here in southwest Minnesota, or wherever we are from, that we would have your heart, have your passion, that we would know and have an intimate relationship with you, one that we continue to nourish through prayer, reading of the word, fellowshipping with like-minded believers. God, that we would grow in that intimacy so that out of it would flow the works of love that you've called us to. Lord, I pray for each one of us here as we go our different directions this afternoon that you would go before us, that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit's leading, that we would be on the alert for those divine appointments, that we would trust your Holy Spirit to give us the words to speak when the opportunities arise, and more than anything, that we would walk in the love of your Son, Jesus. We ask all this that you'd be glorified and that the name of your Son would be glorified. Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.